welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on April 6, 2019 at Provincetown Theatre in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was mystery. Please welcome to the stage, William Mullen. As a gay man, women are a mystery to me. And, and I love them. I love them. But, and, and especially as a young, closeted high school boy, they were basically a veritable Nancy Drew novel. And, and, we, and, and, and the thing about it, the mystery growing up closeted in high school was just the hormones and not knowing what you do with your own body, let alone this mysterious woman's body. And we had sex education. But like I learned nothing from staring at illustrations from the 1970s that show basically capillaries and veins. <laughs> so I, I was closeted, but I knew that um, from the amount of boys that I was fooling around with that I, I didn't fit in. And I wanted, in high school, who, did, who didn't want to be part of the cool kids, right? And it killed me. I'm like, I want to be part of the cool kids. So after my freshman year where I was bullied, I'm like, I am making it my mission to be a cool kid. And what that meant in my high school was you had to know someone who sat at the cool kid table in the cafeteria. This long cafeteria table, it was basically like the last supper of popular kids. There was the National Honor Society kids, the rich kids, the jocks, and the pretty girls. And this table was led by this girl named Bonnie. And she did everything. She was class president, captain of the field hockey team. She was National Honor Society and did the high school musicals. And she was pretty bossy about it. She ran it. She hand-selected who sat at that table. And I knew Bonnie as a freshman because we both performed in my high school's all-white production of The Wiz. <laughs> True story. And it actually is a story unto itself, and I can't spend the time tonight, but yes. We were both munchkins with afros. And we bonded because we loved learning how to jive talk. They did that. They asked us to jive talk on stage. It was a controversy back then. If it happened today, I would be in jail. <laughs> I mean, it literally was, yeah. So, um, and I thought I had an in. There was, there was Bonnie. And so during, during the production, older cast members like the Scarecrow and Tin Man would suggest, hey, you're both virgins. You're, you're friends. Why don't you just have sex and then you won't be virgins anymore because no one's a virgin. You're 16. And I'm like, that sounds good. But then like the lion was like, whoa, that's like the blind leading the blind. This is a disaster waiting to happen. Slow it down. And all I was just excited about is like, if Bonnie and I like made it, I could sit at the popular kids' table. So I was really psyched. So after further like thinking about it, we began to like go on dates. And after every date, 
I would, like usually a movie, I would drive her in my dad's 1980 Plymouth Valari to a marina in town. I grew up in coastal Connecticut. And the marina, it was like October. It was abandoned. No one was there. And so like all these high school kids are there in cars like making out. Like the windows were all steamed. It's like it was got so steamed. It was like raining inside the car. It's kind of gross. And so I remember one day we had just seen Ghostbusters. We really liked that film. And I drove her to the marina. And before you knew it, we, like, we progressed. And both of us were sitting there naked. And I had no idea what to do. She didn't either. And so I was just like, put my hand on her lady parts. And she began to like that. That was a clue. And I began to explore some more. And she moaned and some more. And to me, this is like the first time I was ever doing that. Like, I did this with guys. But <laughs> the first time, it was like magical. Like, to, I was like pleasuring her. And, and she could not get enough. And she was just like, more, more. And I was like, how far can I go up here? <laughs> I'm not comfortable going this far. This is, this is re okay. And she's like, literally, she's bossy. <laughs> Grabbing my hand and moaning. And I'm going, okay, this is great. You're loving this. And then all of a sudden, she's not loving it. She's like, stop. Oh, my God, no. Oh, my God, stop it. And I was like, I took my hand away. And she's just like, I can't believe you did that. I'm like, I don't know what I did. She's like, I can't believe it. Just drive me home. And it was pitch dark, and I'm trying to get my clothes on. I couldn't even find the car keys. And I'm like, okay. And so I drive her home. She opens up the car door. She slams it, leaves in a huff. And I'm like, what happened? And I go home, and of course, I'm late. And whenever I was late, my mom stayed up watching like Nick at night. And I try to sneak into my bedroom. And my mom's like, Billy Mullen, get in here. And I, I came in, she goes, where have you been? I'm like, I'm sorry, I lost track of time. And then I looked at my mom and her eyeballs were popping out of her head and she goes, what happened to your hand? And I looked at my hand. Do I actually have to describe to you what the hand looked like? The movie Friday the 13th was popular during that time. So I looked at it, and I also screamed. Ah! I don't know what happened. And then I'm like, I feel, I still have feeling. It still functions. The hand still functions. But I knew I had to think on my feet. My mom's looking at this hand. I'm looking at this hand. Is it even my hand? I'm like, what is happening? So then I was like, it was October. I was like, oh, that's, we love Halloween. We went to a drugstore. We got some fake blood. We played around. It's fake blood. <laughs> fake blood. I'll go wash it up. And I was like, went into the bathroom and cried. And I washed it off. And I was like, what the? And I go, oh, my God, Bonnie. Is she bleeding to death? Did I kill her? <laughs> oh my God, I'm in lots of trouble right now. And I was waiting, I'm like, okay, well, if I did kill her or she was, in, there's gonna be a phone call. And I waited for that phone call. 
needless to say, I got no sleep that night. And I waited, no phone call. Phew. I got up early and I made a beeline to the high school library because that's what you did before Google. You had to go to the library and go to the Brit Encyclopedia Britannica and I went and I looked up blood and sex and there it was in black and white, the hymen. They didn't teach you about the hymen in my sex education class, but they should have bolded it, highlighted it, underlined it. It should have come with a Surgeon General warning for all young boys, especially gay ones. That was my mystery, mystery soft. Thanks. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna introduce you to your first storyteller. You guys ready? Yeah. Awesome. Donna Pompanillo, come to the mic. I'm returning home after two hours of life drawing class at Pam. And for those of you who aren't artists, it's a pretty exhausting two hours. You're doing gestural, drawing, looking at a figure, and you're looking, looking, it's a two-minute pose, a five-minute pose, a 10-minute pose, a 20-minute pose, two hours worth. You're exhausted in a great way. So I leave Pam, and I'm walking back home, and I come down my driveway, and I look up at the spiral staircase or the beach, and I think, okay, grab my small beach chair, yell up to my wife, I'll be on the beach, down to the beach I go. So I go down and I'm trying to put just the right spot. You know, where's the sun, da da da. I don't know if the tide's coming in, going out, I don't care. I need to replenish my body, my mind. So I plank the chair down. When I do that, I notice that there's a seagull about two feet in front of me to the right. And the seagull is just standing there. Doesn't move, doesn't flinch, and usually they go like over here, over there, they run away a little bit. Maybe not fly away, but they move. Nothing, and I'm thinking, okay, stay where you are, I'll stay where I am, respect each other's space. And then I'm watching this bird, and the bird is just watching me, but connecting to me in a certain kind of way. <laughs> now, I just got done with gestural drawing, you know? So I know that the bird's not like bent over, it's very stoic, but it's purposefully stoic, you know? It's just, and we're doing eye to eye. And through this whole thing, I'm in my mind and I'm going, okay, bird, it's okay, I'm here for you. I'm here, I'm here. And I'm doing this whole dialogue, I'm not kidding. But, I, cause I feel this bird, you know, it's amazing. Then a little while later, my neighbor comes by, and this is a daily thing. The neighbor has a golden retriever. I believe the guy's out to work or wherever he is, but when he comes home, the dog only has eyes for him. So that the dog, the golden, didn't pay any attention to the seagull, I'm okay with that because all he sees is the frisbee. So, but the bird, the bird doesn't freaking move. Again, the bird is just sitting there. I'm like, oh my God. Now time goes by, now maybe this 30 minutes, that's a long time, maybe 40, I don't know. Paying no attention, all of a sudden, my little low beach chair, I get hit by the ocean, by the, you know, incoming tide. Jump up, push my chair back, Frickin' bird comes running. 
right up to me, just like a little kid would run after a parent on the beach. I'm like, what? <laughs> really, I fall down on my knees. The bird, I kid you not, now this is all true. The bird comes over to me, puts its head and its body on my thigh. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> I look up. I said, is anybody else catching this? Because I don't know if I'm hallucinating. I did a few tabs of LSD back in the day, you know. <laughs> Truth on the table here. So I turn around, I look up. I live next to Pepe's. There's a back wall full of windows. Thank God, sure enough, there's, everybody's in the window with the phone taking a picture. I said, I got witnesses here. This is a good thing. Okay. Finally, my wife comes down to the beach and she, you know, and I explained to her what happened and she said, that bird's been standing there for two days. I said, are you kidding me? The bird's been standing here for two days. You did nothing. I said, go get me a bucket of water. The bird's got to be thirsty. And I'm thinking like, the bird is a seagull. It's a wild animal that lives in the salt water. But they have glands in their head, and to process the salt from the water, it, it takes a lot of energy. So I'm really feeling that, you know, the bird is thirsty. And they do drink fresh water. Truth, that's truth. So my wife comes down with the basin of water. Now the bird is still on my thighs. And my grandmother's voice goes through my head. Don't touch the dead birds. They're full of bacteria, and I'm thinking, oh, crap. Something's wrong with the bird. The bird's coming to me for help, and I can't touch the bird because it's full of bacteria. Grandma, shut up. I grab, I grab a feather that I find. Of course, there's no bacteria on a loose feather on the beach, right? So I grab the feather, and I'm combing the, fe the bird. And, you know, I get the basin. When she brings the basin down, I slide it under the bird's head. Plop. The bird's head goes in the water, and I hear, blah, 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 and I think, Jesus Christ, I just drowned the bird. <laughs> Pull the water out, and all of a sudden, the bird, majestic creature that it is, its wings, the span, it was, they were humongous. I mean, I'm, I'm right there. Boom. The bird's neck goes up, strains as high as it could go. The bird flops over. Dead is dead. <laughs> I killed a bird? Did I really just do this? The bird reached out for me. It took 40 minutes. We finally got our act together. The bird came over for help, and the bird died. Okay. I call Hazmat up. Oh, thank you. I call Hazmat up and, you know, send my wife back upstairs to get a towel. I, I, I swaddled the bird in the thing and put it aside for them to come and get the bird. Now, about a month and a half later, we go back to the city for our jobs come September. And um, for two days, though, let me just say this. For two days after, I, I really could, I couldn't move. I couldn't talk to anyone. I really had to absorb. It was such a spiritual, profound connection that that bird made with me to die with, you know? And the hazmat people did rest my mind saying that birds die of parasites all the time. And that was probably what the bird died of. But on our return to Boston, it really was no mystery at all as to why that bird connected with me because my wife was diagnosed with lung cancer and 
10 months later, she was dead. Um, but that bird brought to me, you know, humanity, you know, the realization that with life comes death. And it's just a natural event. So thank you. James Burns. James, give a big round of applause for James. Hey, everybody. I'm an alcoholic. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's, an old, it's an old joke, but true. Um, I came back to single life in my mid-30s uh, after a decade of being away and quickly found out that um, all of the beautiful, brilliant, kind, uh, caring, funny, empathetic people were gone. Uh, so I decided that I was going to date in Boston. I was living on the Cape then, like I do now. Um, but I couldn't move to Boston, so I decided to move my dating profile there. Uh, it's really easy on OkCupid. All you gotta do is change your zip code and boom, you're dating in Boston. Actually, it was Somerville. I thought Boston was a little too pretentious for me. Uh, so I'm kind of a one-trick pony dating in Boston, you know, coffee shop, go take a uh, walk someplace beautiful, and then if it goes well, drinks and maybe dinner. Um, so I, uh, I found this woman on OkCupid, an attorney, and um, normally I would stay away from attorneys because uh, I prefer people who feel feelings. Um, <laughs> Uh, but she was a bankruptcy attorney, and my dad, my whole childhood was like going through bankruptcy, so I felt like we had that in common. You know, we had something, we had something to talk about. Uh, and, and she, all through her profile, she talked about how much she loved dancing, and I love dancing, you know? And, and she was funny, you know? She, uh, her, she put as her body type uh, fit, because you only get a certain amount of choices. Uh, and then later on in her profile, she wrote an addendum to that, that she had to choose fit because slamming was not an option. <laughs> we, we, grabbed, uh, we grabbed our coffee and we're walking to the Someplace Beautiful, which happened to be Mount Auburn Cemetery. I don't know if anyone's been there. Uh, and we walked around. Uh, I'm very comfortable there. It's a beautiful arboretum. I know my trees. I don't know shit about Boston, but I know trees really well. So uh, we won't go to the tower, this big tower in the middle of it, and you can see panoramic. You can see all the way across Boston, depending on the day, and it was a beautiful day. And we're up there, and like she's kind of ignoring me, and she's just looking off in the distance, and it was so beautiful. It was sunny, and, and she had crazy curly hair, and it was just like kind of blowing in the wind. So I'm like, okay, I'll do the moment too, and I'm looking off, and I'm like, does this, does this girl hate me? Like, this is not going well. So I turned to her and I'm like, um, you know, other than aspiring to be a locally famous tomato farmer on Cape Cod, um, then I'm big in the mid-Cape, okay? Um, I told her that, and she's a Harvard kid, so I was like, oh, I'll talk about, like, I want to write this book. It's, it's called Things and Why They Are. She looked at me like 
That was the most brilliant idea she had ever heard in her entire life, and she wanted to co-write the book. So we were off. It was going great. Uh, we left the tower, and, and we're walking out of the cemetery, and she's, she goes quiet on me again. We're just walking, and, and I normally don't do bring up my family or anything because, like, my family tree's kind of gnarled and has a lot of strange prunings on it, and it's... Uh, <laughs> It's a tricky situation, and I had recently lost a sister a few months ago, and like I didn't want to get into that, but I just, I really had nothing, so I asked her, hey, do you have any siblings? And she said, she paused, and she said, I have a, I have, I have a brother, um, and he actually, he died a month ago. And it was a suicide, and today is his birthday. So I was just like, oh, my God. I went, what are you doing out with me right now? And she, she said, I just, needed, I just needed to get out, you know? I just needed to be around someone. And you seemed like maybe you weren't a psycho. And you were the best option I had. So we're walking, and we're talking about yeah, and I had similar, her brother was estranged from her family and disappeared, and they, and they found out that it was a suicide. And the situation with my sister was kind of similar. She was estranged from our family, and the, the circumstances around her death were, are still unclear, but it was probably similar. And we talked about that, and, and I was thinking about, like, just how crazy it is. And I haven't, nobody, I hadn't told anybody about my sister other than my close family because I felt so much regret about not being there for her and trying to help her. But we both had the same issues and we talked about it and, and I was overwhelmed with how crazy that was and also like how crazy it was that I chose a fucking cemetery for our first date. <laughs> so we get to the bar and like, what, you know, what I do, whenever it's, I mean, I, the date has gone down very into a very dark hole. And uh, so we're at the bar, and I do what I do when things are awkward, and I, I make a toast to her brother uh, because it's his birthday, and she makes a toast to my sister. And then she's like, so what are you going to do now? And I'm like, I guess I'm driving back to Cape Cod. And she goes, just, just come home with me. Let's hang out longer. I think we need each other. You're sleeping in the, be in the guest bedroom. And so we went there, and uh, we walk in, and she takes out her phone, and she puts on some awful dance playlist that was like 90s hip-hop and like various awful pop songs, and put it in a cup. And man, we just had a two-person dance party in that kitchen. Like, we were fire. It was, oh my god, it was amazing. We were spinning and dipping, and I turned everything into merengue. I'm really good at weddings. And, uh, and, like, I burnt out. Like, after, like, an hour or so, I just, like, I had to go to bed. And I told her that. And she just, she said to me, make sure you go to the guest room. And thank you. I haven't, I haven't danced since my brother died. And this was a real gift. I went to bed, and she just stayed up dancing and dancing and dancing. Thank you. Glory. 
Put your hands together for Ellen Anthony. Come on to the stage. It was a dark and drizzly night in Truro. <laughs> the hills of Truro. A car is heading down the deepest dip at the dump when kaboom, swell the crash. The car is total. The siren, the medic, they come, they triage, but the people are okay. But in the back seat of the car is not just any dog. It is the most beloved golden retriever of the owner. He has the peachy, silky hairs and the white, frosty snoot and <laughs> the big brown eyes, what are like the kettle pounds of love. <laughs> <clears throat> this beloved dog is named Claude Monet. <laughs> and he is gone. In the crash, he exit the total car, you know? So the owner is frantic. Where is Claude Monet? The woods of Truro, at night especially, is spooky. <laughs> you have the hoot owl. <laughs> you have uh, uh, Claude Monet could be uh, bleeding, maybe, from the accident. You have the bushy tail, uh, what do you call it, coyote? So she's frantic everywhere. She make a big mugshot poster of Claude Monet, and she put everywhere in the hair salon, the snippy shop, the swapper shop, the stopper shop, everywhere. <laughs> she put a poster of the mugshot of Claude Monet, so everybody knows Claude Monet all the way down to the sandwich. People are everywhere, don't, my time, it's uh, quick. Uh, everywhere people are searching for the Claude Monet. They put out food, they check the next morning, who ate the milk bone? Where is Claude Monet, you know? They search for the fresh poop, they scoop the poop. If you know your dog, you know he's a poop, yeah? <laughs> so they are in the woods with the cell phone and you know, uh, Truro, 75% national seashore, the reception is pathetic. <laughs> so, the owner is one week go by, no dog. Two weeks go by, no dog. <gasps> she decided to consult uh, a psychic. on the phone to Kentucky. <clears throat> Claude Monet 
is okay. $50. Claude Monet is with a white woman with white hair. $50. Oh, oh she's supposed to have a Kentucky accent. Uh, Claude Monet is uh, with a white woman on the white, huh? And next to a white house with uh, chip and white paint. $150 ka-ching. Okay. Well, it so happened day 17, I am at my mother's house. Uh, my mother, she's 93, she had the white hair, but she is a Passover. She becomes spirit. I'm at her house, we are with Berdine. My friend is freshening up with the paint, the, uh, the bedroom of my mother. And she's letting go the fumes, and she crank open the window, the Anderson, and she say, <laughs> look, Elle, a dog. I come running in with, to my friend, uh, my mother's bedroom. I look out, everyone has seen this mug shot, I go, Oh my God, it's Claude Monet. And I get on the cell phone to my neighbor, Gary Ormsby, and he comes immediately because he has the golden retriever. He loves the golden retriever. He's been in the woods with the, you know, the, all that. And uh, so he's on his knees with the kibble, what exactly the Claude Monet like. He's on his knees, which I would do, but I, the mic won't go down. Is uh, Creepy, creepy, very quiet, quiet, because the Claude Monet, he's like a candle, just like, just like shaking, just like, just, yes, it's like. And uh, so Gary hold out the hand with the kibber, and eventuellement, Claude just uh, lean into Gary. Just all the, what remains of his weight is not very much now. And Gary pull up all of that dog in his arm and put in the back of the truck with a blanket. And he is safe at last. The moral of the story, when you drive Route 6 in Turo, you must drive like what you have in the back seat is Claude Monet. Please welcome Kate Wallace Rogers. is a friend of mine, and this is one of the worst things a friend could ever do to you. <laughs> I really, uh, a friend I came with the, today said, oh, I once, I once did that uh, mosquito thing, and I put my name in the hat, and then I begged them to give it back to me halfway through, because the stories were so good. And I wish I could just, like, fall into an accent that would make the story a lot better. <laughs> so... It's not even funny or anything. Okay. So, um, 
uh, in the fall, I, uh, I have a son who uh, has bipolar disorder. And he was in his last semester at uh, college. He goes to school up in Canada, uh, in Montreal. And um, over the past uh, half dozen years, he's had about 10 hospital stays. Um, because much as he loves school and wants so badly to become an engineer and to do really well, uh, after, especially after things get more and more successful, he's, he's having a good run, then um, it tends to fall apart. Um, and, uh, but this fall, he had, he, had, he had been like two, over two years um, uh, on his meds and sober, because the sobriety really plays into the whole thing. Um, and, and we were really hopeful that he was gonna get to December and uh, at 25 graduate uh, from college. Um, but it started to get uh, a little dicey. We get sort of signals of, of how things are going. And um, first, uh, his communication gets a little sketchy. Like right now in his life, he's doing really well. And he calls me almost every day and checks in. And it, it's, it's really great. But um, it, it gets to be a few days. It gets to be a week. Um, he starts uh, putting a lot of things on um, Facebook and Instagram, and m my daughter, um, my daughter, was uh, following. I don't do Instagram, but um, she was following, and there were hundreds of posts in a day. Um, so I was starting to get concerned, and more concerned because over time. Um, when he started out, you know, it, it was very typical college. He was all excited to go, and, and we knew his little posse of friends that he'd made in the freshman dorm. And then when he moved to an apartment, we helped him get the apartment, and, and we got to know those friends, and we would go to dinner with the parents. And so that was a close group. But over time, as things fell apart, and he had um, run-ins with his friends, and things... Um, he, he, he never hurts anyone, but he, he gets so manic um, that they fear for him, and, um, and he, he gets somewhat combative. Um, so uh, it, we were starting to walk down that path, and I, I'm always the last one to believe that he could possibly fall to the grips of this disease again. Um, so... Uh, my daughter was trying to tell me that what she was seeing, and 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 uh, different relatives who who are on Facebook more than I am, kept checking in and saying, you know, I think maybe you know you need to check in with him, and and I don't think it's going so well, and so I'm getting the picture, but I don't have any way of getting in touch with him because um, he's moved off campus and now he's just living with one other guy and the guy is a graduate student and they have totally opposite hours and I don't, I don't even know this guy's name because he's 25. He doesn't have to tell me, you know, who his buddies are or whatever and, and I don't think he really even knew the guy too well. Um, 
I, I do know um, one thing that's starting to frustrate him is that he's spending uh, time with younger people. So everybody's, you know, two or three years younger than he is in the engineering lab. I know he spends a lot of time in the engineering lab, um, and he's proud that he got to this place where, um, like, it's an elite thing. You know, once you're a senior, you get to be in the engineering lab, and there are only 30 other guys um, that are in there. So I know he spends time there, and um, I know that um, most of these guys are Indian and Pakistani, and um, he's having a, a great, great relationship with them, and, and he's really looking forward to the uh, one huge celebration is that the engineers um, in Canada get this uh, iron ring. It's a ring that they wear on their pinky, and it means that he's, he's going to be an engineer, you know? And I kept thinking, could they please just give him the ring after he graduates, not like a month and a half before? Because I had a feeling that, that once he got the ring, he'd be celebrating in a different way. Anyway, so that was my guess. And I had no way of getting in touch with him. And I got to a place where I was... Um, I, I, I couldn't sleep much, and, and I just, <sighs> there wasn't anything I could do except like plan, I started to plan with my daughter that I would go up to Canada, but I still didn't know where to reach him. And one night, um, I was having trouble sleeping, and I, I woke up at, at five in the morning, just out of the blue, and I had all these calls on my phone from a 514 area code. And I thought, oh, that's why he's not communicating because he lost his phone and now he found somebody and he could call from that phone and yay. And, but the, the calls are like every few minutes, you know, all, uh, through, through a lot of the night, like from two to 5 a.m. And uh, so I call the number and it's this guy, it's Shashwat. Uh, who is a friend of Oliver's in the engineering lab. And he said, you know, who's this? And I said, well, this is Kate, I'm Oliver's mother. Do you know Oliver? And he said, yes, I've been with Oliver. Like we met at Tim Hortons at the night and I'm trying to help him because he's struggling. And I said, well, I, I don't get it. Like, how do I have your phone number in my phone if you didn't call me? And he said, well, I was calling India and uh, I was talking to my parents all, all night, and Oliver kept calling in. And apparently, every time Oliver called Shashwat, Shashwat's phone number came to my phone. So I, I, I don't know how that could possibly have happened. But Oliver, when he gets uh, manic, he starts getting really about conspiracy theory and all this paranoia. And um, he imagined that I was with his professor, like we were gonna make a building come down where he was living in the street one time. And so here we are, like, and, and he's in his height of his mania, and I didn't wanna tell him because of conspiracy theory, like then he'd be really freaked out. But I have a belief um, and it follows Rob Bresney, who's an astrologer you might have heard of. And he says that he believes that the universe is conspiring to shower you with blessings. And apparently Shashwat has the same belief.
Thank you. Put your hands together for Frank Campo. The story starts out in Nice, France. My partner and I decide that we were going to go on vacation on the French Riviera. So here we are in Nice, and every day we figured we would take the train out to a different town. So we get to the train station, and Paul says, hold on for a second. He starts talking in French. We were together probably five or six years, and I had no clue that this man spoke French. And he's going on and on and on and on. So I looked at him, I said, what the frig? <laughs> I said, I never knew you spoke French. And he said, well, you never asked me. And <laughs> so anyway, we, we get to one of the train stations. And um, so I, I, I said, oh, Jesus, Paul, I got to go to the bathroom. There's this huge metal bathroom. bathroom. And um, so I go up to it, and it, all these signs are in French. I had no clue what it meant. But this Australian guy comes out. He goes, hello, mate. Why don't you just walk in? I'll hold the door for you. So I go in, and I just start to pee. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, what the hell? What the hell's on my ankle? And the lights go off. The doors lock. And we are in dishwasher mode. <laughs> so anyway, I'm, I'm thinking, I didn't know what the frig was happening. So all of a sudden, all the jets are starting to come at me. And I'm just soaking friggin' wet. And I'm banging on the door, banging, banging, get me out of this fucking place, get me out. So all of a sudden, Paul comes by and he starts putting change in the thing. And this is all you hear. That's all you could hear. And the change wouldn't go through. And I'm going, get me out of this fucking, screaming like a maniac. So then all of a sudden, what comes after the water? The soap. <laughs> so, so now here I am covered in water and soap and then some, some guy, you could hear this guy come around saying um, change, moi, change moi exact solo moi something like that, change moi exact solo moi and I'm thinking what the hell's that mean, no one knows I say it in Italian, I probably understand you so, so anyway the guy puts the coins in and all of a sudden the water stops the lights go on, the door unlocks, and I am standing there like this, just soaking wet. And everybody on the, on, on the train station, they all just turn around, and they're all looking at me, and they're pissing themselves laughing. So I says, what the freak does change, change moi exact sur le moi mean? And he says, uh, exact change, sir. <laughs> so he was my mystery man. So that was it. <laughs> Let's welcome Jean Ladue. So my mother said that we were hippies before there were hippies. We lived in a commune before anybody even knew what a commune was. I'm one of 13, most of you know that already. Lived on a farm up in Vermont. So in that life, we really didn't go to the grocery store. My mother went to the grocery store, of course, when we were in school, and she needed those things that they couldn't produce themselves. Toilet paper, thank God. <laughs> Joy dishwashing liquid, Life Boy soap. How about mum deodorant? Most of you are probably too young to even know this stuff. 
So these are the things they would buy at the store, and everything else we produced ourselves. All of our vegetables came from the garden. All of our meat came from either the chickens that we got as little baby chicks in the spring, or the pigs that we got as little baby piglets, or a farm down the road, and my dad would split a cow. So everything we had really came from there. So when I went to school, I got to learn about Oreo cookies. <laughs> I would take those sandwiches made with homemade bread and honey from the little lady down the road and peanut butter from the pail and swap it for Wonder Bread and bologna. <laughs> you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? <laughs> so part of that life was that you grew up in a very interesting little bubble. I heard about the Grand Union, but I hadn't really been to the Grand Union. <laughs> time rolls on. I get to be uh, 19 years old, and it's time for Jean to get married. So they send me off to California to get married. And now I have to go to the grocery store. Great. So I go to the grocery store, and uh, living on a very small budget, we start to buy food. Now. The meat in my house was in white paper that we cut up at the table, wrapped it in the paper, wrote roast beef on the top, put it in the freezer, pot rolls, put it in the freezer. No clue. Now I go in the grocery store and I look at these packages of meat and I have no idea. I have no clue. What am I supposed to buy? So I just buy according to the price. Mm, that's a bad idea. <laughs> and then of course, we buy canned vegetables because it's cheaper in the can. And the man that I married didn't live the way that I lived, so that's how they live. So here I am, little Miss Susie Homemaker, new wife, and I have to make dinner, and I get out the stuff to make dinner, and I take out the can of peas. And I open the can of peas, and I look in the can, and I go, that's rotten. And I throw that away. <laughs> It was a mystery to me, all right? I open the next can of peas and I look at them. They're rotten too. I throw them away. So it's time for dinner. He comes home. He says, ah, oh, dinner. So I proudly put dinner on the table. And he says, where are the peas? I thought we were having peas for dinner. I said, no, they're rotten. I had to throw them out. Really? I said, yeah, both cans, rotten. So he goes over, he looks in the trash. And he says, those aren't rotten. I said, those aren't peas. <laughs> so it's a re really big learning curve. When you come out of Hippie Land Commune and you go to the Grand Union or the Safeway or whatever it is at the time. So then I think, I'm going to make a cake. I'll be like, you know, this will be great. You'll come home, I'll have a cake. Now, we'd only had wood stove and gas stove. Never heard of an electric stove till I move into this little apartment in California. It's electric stove. So I figure out, and this is before, by the way, YouTube University. I, there, was no, there was no manual. It wasn't in the Botanica how you're supposed to use an electric stove. So I make my little cake. I put it in my little pan. I put it in the electric stove, turn the stove on, and I look over and I see, oh, timer. Great idea. Set the timer. I'm waiting. The house does not smell like cake. 
Doesn't smell like anything's happening. I look in, but it's coming up. Okay, so I wait, I wait, I wait. Finally, the timer goes off, and I thought, oh, great, the cake is done. Little did I know that the timer was the timer to shut the oven off. So the cake came up, and the cake went down. <laughs> Another mystery. So what are you going to do? You, you know, you're trying to impress this person that you're married to. I just filled the hole in with frosting. <laughs> yeah, that didn't go over too well either. But you know, it's very interesting when you grow up picking berries in the woods in the back of a pickup truck, and then your mother makes them into jam and makes them into pies. And then one day, this guy you're married to says, I want you to make me a pie. And I think, okay, make you a pie. So I said to him, I don't, I don't know how to make a pie. So he brings home a can. And in the can, it said, you know, cherry pie. So I, <laughs> I open it up, and I look in that can, and I think, there's really something wrong with the world, because these cherries are rotten. <laughs> Needless to say, we didn't ever eat out because all of our money was going into the trash can. <laughs> yeah, it, they weren't rotten, but they didn't look like vegetables or fruit that I had ever seen. So the mystery for me was learning how to figure out where in the store do they actually have peas that look like peas and green beans that look like green beans. It was in the freezer section, right? So uh, after about three months, I guess that was about the time I figured that out. So that's the mystery solved. That's the mystery studied for me, how to shop in the grocery store. Thanks. Please come to the stage, Tom Markey. Tom Markey. So I fucking hate slugs. Um, and that is absolutely the best just, uh, adjective I could use for that statement. Um, I've even tried to go back in my childhood to think of when this hate, severe hatred had started with slugs. Not like I need a reason, they're so nasty to look at anyway, but uh, I did remember a time it could have stemmed from, uh, I was about 10 years old and my uncle Ted and I would walk in, around, play around in the woods behind my grandmother's house often. And uh, so on one of these trips walking through the woods, uh, he, we go deep into the woods and he takes me to a pond that has a beaver dam and he informs us we're going to go swimming. So, you know, I'm 10. I'm like, all right, cool, going swimming. So we literally uh, jump off this beaver dam into this cold pond with a slimy bottom. You know, it's gross and cold. So I get out and I'm out for the remainder of the time. But he's all exploring the beaver dam, swimming around. And then finally we're, you know, leaving and uh, halfway, you know, through the woods to my grandma's house, he says, uh, we got to uh, check for leeches. I'm like, what, leeches? Leeches from the water here? Why? What are you talking about? And I believe he said something like, uh, you know, leeches are blood suckers that suck to you. And if you don't get them off, they'll go into your bloodstream, up your veins, into your heart and explode. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, I remember 10. I'm like, oh my God, we got to check for leeches. Uh, <laughs> So, you know, I, you know, check my body, I'm good and clear. Uh, Michael Ted takes his shirt off and sure enough, he has like three or four leeches on his body. But uh, it, it's, it's a gross sight. Uh, 
And if you haven't figured it out by now, my Uncle Ted is deranged. And uh, luckily, uh, thanks to the Rambo movie, he always had a survival knife on him. So he does then slice off, flick off these leeches. So that's definitely been burned in my brain. And maybe I transferred that onto slugs. But I'm no therapist. Uh, I am also guilty of, uh, in my adolescence, pouring salt on these creatures to, with pleasure to watch them squirm and melt. And I swear I heard one screaming once. Uh, I am ashamed of that today. And now in present day, I, uh, the cottage I live at here, uh, every summer the rockway up to my front door becomes a playground for slugs. Many of them, families, small ones, babies, big ones, real long ones, slimy, <laughs> gross. So now <laughs> I now use, uh, I've tried natural pesticides to put around the area, not on them. I try not to run over them with my bike because that's a real gross mess as well. So I'm trying to learn to live in harmony with these guys in retribution for the ancestors of theirs I slaughtered. <laughs> and also including another incident, which happened back uh, when I was about 15 years old. I would come home late at night uh, from hanging out with friends and go into the house from the, through the garage door, uh, it was a back door to the kitchen, to make myself food and before going up to bed, you know, this is after some alcohol usually. So uh, this one particular night, I walk into the kitchen and on the floor, slithering at me is a slug inside the house. I'm like, how does it get in the house? But I have to act fast. I'm looking around, trying to figure out how I'm going to dispose of this thing. I jump over it. I'm running around. I find a dustpan in the pantry, come back, scoop it up, run into the bathroom, and flush it down the toilet. Decide I'll just never use that bathroom again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I go to bed, totally fearful, realizing slugs can be in the house now. Uh, I mentioned this to my mom the next morning. She's shocked, but otherwise kind of blows off the situation. And, uh, you know, I guess a week goes by or so, and it's kind of forgotten. And then until uh, another night, uh, a week or two later, come home again looking for some food uh, in the pantry. And when I enter the pantry, there are two slugs on the floor is what I find instead. <laughs> So again, I'm right there, I, uh, I see my, trust, my trusty dustpan, I grab that, scoop these guys up, uh, there's a trash can right there, I throw them in the trash can and stab down the dustpan into the garbage, get them way down good and tie it up and uh, throw it on top of some other trash bags I see in the pantry. So this is ridiculous, I can't believe they're in the house, I don't know what is causing this, again, mom is very little help. Uh, <laughs> Time goes on, just feel like the mystery will never be solved. Uh, we must just have holes like in the walls. <laughs> so um, yeah, life goes on and then one night I'm home early and uh, I'm in the kitchen and I notice my mother coming in from the garage with a trash bag in each hand and my eyes kind of grow wide and I'm like, mom, what are you doing? And she's like, well, <laughs> so, uh, She's been bringing in garbage bags from earlier in the week and puts them in the pantry the day before trash day so my stepdad will take them out in the morning. And my skin just goes pale. I point at my mother. I'm like, it's you. You've been bringing the slugs into the house. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. Please 
please welcome to the stage, Kristen Knowles. Kristen. Hi. Hi. This is amazing. I can't even believe the first half, seriously. Oh my gosh. And Ellen. Ellen. <laughs> okay. When I was a little girl, my dad used to tell me stories about when he was growing up in Japan. Um, and he only lived there for two years, but he loved to tell us stories about that time. And one of the things he would do sometimes with my mom is he'd always call her like Mama-san. That was his little like sweet endearment because um, that's what he called his mother when they lived in Japan, Mama-san and Papa-san. And he'd sing like these little songs that he learned and you know, it was just this really tender, sweet um, feeling that, you know, that I carry with me when I think about those words. So, um, when I was in my 20s, my late 20s, um, I went traveling for the first time in my life, and I went to Central America for three months. And I was traveling around Guatemala, and um, some friends of mine were staying at Isla Mujeres, and I was like, hmm, how can I get there? So um, I traveled all the way to Isla Mujeres from Guatemala, and um, while I was there, there were these guys that were right near where I was staying, and um, I was talking to them, they spoke only Spanish, and um, I kept saying things that were wrong because my Spanish was really rough. So like, instead of like um, fear, like I have fear, I'd be like, I have shit. You know, like miedo, mierda, and stuff like that. Or I'd say like, I was really embarrassed. I'd be like, I was really pregnant. You know, things like that, right? So, so they started calling me Chica Loca. <laughs> which, which I thought was kind of cool. I was like, you know, thinking Ricky Martin, I'm like living la vida loca. That's right, I'm tica loca, right? So I hung on to that moniker for a long time. And um, like I put it, it was like my logo on the back of my, my chat book when I was a poet and, you know, stuff like that. So I was chica loca. And then I got kids. And I thought, well, I'm no chica anymore. Um, so I'm gonna modify it, and I turned, I changed it to Mama Two Loca, and I thought that's really clever, you know, <laughs> with the two in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyway, so then I'm Mama Two Loca, and that's like my new password for everything, and yeah. So, so then. Um, after adopting my kids, um, I have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> I know, I know, right? So, so I'm in the hospital, and um, and I'm thinking about Mama Too Loca, and I'm thinking. I'm not sure that like putting this out into the universe continually is really helping me, you know, because I'm kind of like manifesting exactly like mama too, loca. So, um, so I changed it and I chose the word sauna instead because of how it related to the mama-san thing when I was a little girl, but sauna in Spanish means healthy. 
And to me, it was almost like, <clears throat> like the Pachamama is the word for the earth. Um, and, and, you know, it's that whole like Gaia thing. And I thought Mama Sana, like healthy earth, healthy me, just, and so I thought, there it is. Like, this is going to be my new thing that I'm going to be. I'm going to be Mama Sana. So I changed all my email addresses. <laughs> right, right, so funny. <laughs> and people were like, Mama Sana, what's this? And nobody really gets it. And I'm like, I don't, I don't care. And so then, like, I've come up with this idea to start this upcycled um, clothing company. Um, right here on Cape Cod, and anyway, there's a long story to that, but I'm thinking, like, what can I name this? And I'm like, oh, well, Mama Sana, because it's, like, healthier Earth, healthier me, and it's women's clothing, and I'm thinking, okay, yeah, that's a great name. I could, I could do that. And so <clears throat> then... Like, on top of this, I think some of you know that I'm an anti-human trafficking activist, and I do public education around human trafficking. So, um, so part of my whole business plan was to give money to organizations that support women um, who have been trafficked, and men, of course, um, as well as to do prevention work right here on the ground on Cape Cod. And so this is my whole vision, right? And so then Robert Kraft gets arrested. <laughs> and I'm reading, of course, several different articles about it and different pundits, you know. And um, I, I'm reading this article, and it's talking about the Asian trafficking, which is very highly organized crime, and I know a lot about it. However, I found a detail that I did not know. A female pimp in the Asian community is called a mama-san. <laughs> right? Oh my god. But, and I'm like, wow, I wonder if like the FBI is following me, because that's like my email address, right? I'm like, <laughs> I'm a madam, you know? Got a brothel here in East Orleans. Um, yeah, so, so um, but it's, it's one of those things where you just look at how the different thing, the threads connect through your life, and how did I end up here as an anti-human trafficking educator, and then having, you know, these things all coming together, it just, it was astonishing to me, but then I thought, you know, it's perfect, it's absolutely perfect, because, like, I am the polar opposite of that, and I am becoming Mama Sana. Hands together for Pat Medina. Come on to the mic. Well, hi. Um, so the mystery, the mystery, the mystery is, okay, so when I was growing up, my, my parents were divorced. So I always lived in two very strange households. Um, I was, the thing that they had in common that they saw eye to eye on is that we were gonna be raised, you know, in, in the Catholic religion. And so we were inconsistent Catholics. <laughs> and so, um, For, for a few years, I lived at my dad's house, and we lived in a six-family apartment building, and every family was part of my family. So my grandfather owned the building. And 
cousins running all over. But the backdrop of the Catholic thing is that behind closed doors, my family was practicing Santeria. <laughs> this was very confusing for me. Okay, so I grew up not knowing the difference between an angel and a ghost, or a devil, you know, the, the, the devil in the Bible, or a demon. And this was just really weird, and so as I got older, I got away from the Catholicism part of it, because it was just mind-boggling to try and wrap my head around both things. So, um, and no, I didn't go into Santeria myself. You know, actually ghosts slash saints slash whatever that unknown thing is scares the crap out of me. So I try not to find out too much about it. But this one afternoon, I was going to visit my kid's sister who was still living at home with my mother. I was about my, in my 20s. And I got there, mom of course wasn't home, and I laid down on the couch. It was a bright sunny afternoon. The, Sunlight was streaming in through the windows. The couch was over in the darkened little corner and I just laid down. It was just like, oh, so peaceful. Nobody was home yet. But as I laid there, suddenly the room got really dark. I mean, really dark, like I couldn't see the furnishings around me. And then I felt a clammy sweat and there was an apparition standing at the foot of the couch. And not really being attached to the Catholicism, man, I started praying my ass off. I was like, our father, our father, our father, or whoever, whoever, Holy Mary, you know, all of them. All of, I wanted all of them to come because whatever this was that was appearing there, I didn't want to see it. I wanted it to go away. And it was really scaring the crap out of me. So I remembered what my, my father's family would always say, if you ever see anything, ask it what it wants. <laughs> like, really? So this is what comes to me when I'm like <laughs> But I couldn't move. I was kind of like stuck on the couch. So I'm like, what do you want? And it's like getting bigger. And I'm like, okay, show no fear. Show no fear. Okay, so. Finally, the light comes back into the room, and I'm like, I'm in a sweat. I'm exhausted. I said, you know what? Screw my kid sister. I'm out of here. <laughs> Gone. And as I leave the house, I'm feeling like creepy, creepy behind me. And I turn around, and there's a figure in the window. So let me just go. So the following week comes, and I'm hanging out with my mom now in the kitchen, and she says to me, you know, I think this place is haunted. I think so, Mom. She says, no, sometimes when we're sitting here, I said, I know, you can see things in the living room and the bright sunlight, yeah, yeah. You know, it's probably a bird, it's probably something. And I'm like, following week comes, again, I'm going over to my mom's house to kind of hang out with my sister. My sister's like 15 or 16 at this, at this stage in my life. I was in my early 20s. And, um, and my mother had said, you know, I'll leave pork chops out, cook for your sister. So she comes in with her friend, Susan. 
and they're giggly, and Susan has a little crush on me because I'm like the first lesbian she ever knew. And they're all giggly and stuff, and I'm over by the kitchen doing the pork chops. And my little sister says to me, you know, I think this house is haunted. <laughs> I said, yeah. Did you ever see anything, Pat? And I'm like, let me tell you a story. And so I get like really, ooh, and I start telling them this very story that I told you. And when I get to the part where I started praying, at that moment, with me cooking pork chops and those kids standing there listening to me, all the lights went out. <laughs> I kind of almost thought they were going to go out here tonight, but all the lights went out. Susan hit the deck. And if you ever heard two 15-year-old girls scream, it was blood curdling. And the only sign of light was the flame around the pork chops. And I stood there, once again, frozen, saying, Our oh, Father, who art in heaven. Still a mystery. Still a mystery how the hell the lights went out. When I left the house that day, the window got darkened again, and there was still somebody watching me walk down the block. Mm -hmm. Put your hands together for Stephen DeRoche. So I love to travel. And what I love, I think, most about traveling is the mystery of it, that you go someplace that's completely foreign to you and you discover these worlds for yourself that you never even knew existed. But in the process of that discovery, you can look kind of stupid. Case in point, I, my junior year of college, I studied abroad in Australia. So about two weeks after I arrive in Sydney, it's my 20th birthday. And so the American friends that had come over with me, um, we go out to a pub. We can see Sydney Harbor Bridge, Opera House. We're having a fantastic time. And if you celebrate a birthday in Australia, it's everybody in the pub is your immediate friend. And they're buying you drinks, having a great time. And this pub was really crowded and really loud. And everyone's sort of jostling around. And everyone's just handing me drinks. And I'm having a great time. And then I notice there is this mountain of a man standing next to me. He is enormous, super tall, big, strapping, white guy, blonde hair, blue eyes. And I noticed that people in the pub are kind of looking at him, but I'm like, well, look at him. He's enormous. So I chalk it up to that. And then he hears someone wish me a happy birthday. So he turns to me and he says, oh, hey, it's your birthday. So he buys me a beer. And I say, hey, thanks a lot. You know, say a few words. And he says, you're from North America. Like, where are you from? I said, I'm from the States of Massachusetts, and we're chatting. And then I say, hey, my name's Steve. And he kind of gives me this odd look, because um, I say, what's your name? And he goes, um, Shane. So I'm like, all right, it's nice to meet you, Shane. And then he starts asking me what I'm doing in Australia. I was like, I'm going to study Australian history. And he's like, oh, well, you got to go here. you got to go there. And he says, and you got to go see a cricket match. And in preparation, I was trying to learn all about Australia. And I was learning about cricket. And I was like, ugh, I have zero idea what cricket's about. So I say that to him. And then I say, um, do you play? And he looks at me, and his jaw drops, and he bursts out laughing, and he goes, a, a little. <laughs> and I go, oh, well, maybe you can explain it to me. So he's like, let me get another beer. And then we did a shot. 
So he explains cricket to me like in detail. And I thought I was hilarious. And I say, mm, that sounds really boring and lame. <laughs> <laughs> and he looks at me and he lets out like this deep belly laugh. And he goes, let me get us another beer. So he gets another beer, we do another shot, and he's like, really, mate, it's a great game. You're gonna love it, blah, 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 blah. And he's explaining this and that, and I'm like, whatever, baseball sounds better. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> so he turns to me, gets another beer, another shot, and says, I gotta go. It was lovely to meet you. And I said, um, what was your name again? And he bursts out laughing, and he goes, it's Shane, Shane Warren. So I'm like, hey, Shane, it was great to meet you. I'm gonna be in Australia for a long time. Hopefully I'll see you again. He's like, you probably will. <laughs> and he leaves. Now, the Australians that we had kind of been hanging out with that night, I noticed that they're all paying attention, but this is this enormous man. So I just think that's it. And they come running over and they go, that was amazing. And I was like, what? And they're like, you just spent like an hour drinking with Shane Warren. And I'm like, do you know him? And they're like, do we know him? And I'm like, did you go to high school with him? What? Like, I don't know. And they're like, he's a cricket player. And I was like, yeah, he told me. He explained to me. Cricket sounds boring. And he's like, it's Shane Warren. And they keep trying to. I'm like, it's loud. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm a little drunk. So whatever. So the night goes on, and they're like, you don't understand. So we leave the pub, and we go to King's Cross, which is Sydney's version of Times Square. And they plant me down in the middle of King's Cross and go, and there is a gigantic billboard for Nike sneakers with this man that I just met, <laughs> Shane Warren. Then they point over there. There's a billboard of Shane Warren promoting the Australian Special Olympics. A bus goes by. There's Shane Warren on the side of the bus. And I'm like, and they go, Shane Warren is the most famous cricket player in the world. And to date, he is still the most famous cricket player in the world. When I met him in 1994, he was already a legend and an icon. To put it into context, this is as if Tom Brady or Serena Williams or Michael Jordan walks into this bar and I go, what's your name again, Serena Williams? You play tennis? That sounds lame. <laughs> and in my defense, Twice while I was there, I went to see my best friend Shane Warren playing cricket. I still don't understand it, and it's totally boring and lame. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook, and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.